I'm Felix Bennell, and this is episode 21 of The Housebound Historian. We're reading Skid Road, an informal portrait of Seattle, written by Murray Morgan, published in 1951 by Viking. On this episode, we're still in the section called Hiram Gill in the Newspapers, 1910 to 1918. It was the spirit and genius of American political institutions and American law that made possible the correction of Gillism. In 1906, Seattle had inserted into its city charter an amendment permitting the voters to use, whenever the occasion should arise, the latest device of American democratic machinery, the recall. Its operation was simple. If you wanted to get a man out of office, you had to collect the signatures of one-fourth of the registered voters on a recall petition. When you got that number, a special election would be held between 40 and 50 days after the recall petitions were filed with the city controller. The recall election was like any other election, The name of the official under attack would go on the ballot unless he refused to stand, in which case he forfeited office. Other candidates could be named in the way they were nominated in an ordinary campaign. If the incumbent received more votes than any opponent, he was considered to be vindicated and the recall was defeated. If another candidate received a plurality, the official was recalled. Gill had been in office only a few weeks before conditions got so bad that the first petitions for his recall appeared on the streets. The charges listed on the petition included incompetence and unfitness, and abuse of the appointed power, but the important ones were refusal and neglect to enforce the criminal laws of the city, permitting the city to become a home and refuge for the criminal classes, and failure to enforce impartially the laws and ordinances. For these reasons, it was set forth, Gill's continuance in office constituted a menace to the business enterprises and moral welfare of the city. For a time, few people were willing to sign the petitions. Many voters, especially businessmen and city employees, were afraid to offend the city hall. Some voters who opposed Gill also opposed the newfangled elective device by which it was proposed to oust him, and nearly half of the voters wanted Gill to just stay where he was. The Times served as spokesman for this group. Colonel Blethen thundered and volleyed at the very idea that vice could be suppressed. Gill was so sure the storm would blow over that he left for Alaska on a yacht owned by a prominent gambler. That was a tactical error. While he was away, the acting mayor, a conscientious person, suspended Wappenstein and named a committee to investigate the skid road conditions. Gill came steaming back, but the damage was done. The post-intelligencer spread the news about local vice all over page one. The recall drive began to do better. The churches sponsored it. Gill's old enemy, the pure and publicity-minded Dr. Matthews, fumed against Gillism and graftitis in every sermon. From many pulpits, one of the regular Sunday announcements was that at the close of the service, the men in the congregation would have an opportunity to show how they felt about the open city excesses. Standing beside the minister at the door would be a canvasser with an anti-Gill petition. The labor unions, the YMCA, and finally some of the department stores helped to circulate the petitions. At one stage, there were 400 full-time canvassers rounding up signatures. Then help came from an unexpected source. In November 1910, while petitions were still being circulated, the men of Seattle voted to give Seattle women the ballot, restoring the right they had lost in 1887. It was assumed that the female voter would be more moral than the male, and Gill's supporters feared what would happen if the women got a chance to vote on the open city issue. Once it became apparent that there would be enough signatures to force an election eventually, the Gill people quietly threw their weight behind the drive. If there had to be a recall vote, they wanted it to come before the suffrage legislation took effect. The anti-vice people weren't quite as amateurish as the professionals hoped. They merely refrained from filing the petitions until late December. Shortly before Christmas, half a dozen men, led by the head of the Public Welfare League, marched self-consciously into the city controller's office. Each carried an armed load of petitions. 
They passed them across the desk to the controller, who, in a photo taken at that historic moment, looked pained. It was the first time in the history of the Northwest, the second time in the history of the country, that a public figure had been forced to account for his stewardship. And the footnote says, the mayor of Los Angeles, faced with a recall election the previous year, had resigned. Gill, a free-swinging orator of the old school, took to the stump to tell the people his side of the case. He didn't make any pretense of being perfect, he said, but he was better than the dogs, the skunks, the puppies, and the hypocrites who opposed him. I want you to overlook my faults and give me credit for what I do, he told the voters. Look at the number of arrests during my administration. Look at the revenue derived from the fines in police court. Both were admittedly higher than during the closed-town administration that preceded him. Anti-Gill people argued that higher fines meant a greater turnover in crime business rather than stricter enforcement. This proposition of holding office is a tough one, Gill assured the electorate, but I will continue to be mayor. I don't care how large a majority is against me. Public decency is not the issue in this campaign. What do you care for the detriment some cuss suffers from shooting crabs? The forces of decency, as the reformers styled themselves, picked as their knight-errant a bland real estate man named George W. Dilling, who was nominally a progressive Republican. His chief appeal was that, except for a sole term in the state legislature, he had avoided politics. Nobody was sore at him, except, of course, choleric Colonel Blethen, who remarked in the Times, Dilling is running on his record as a good husband. The real invective came from Gill. As he warmed up to the campaign, he told his audiences that Dilling hadn't got the brains of an underfed microbe. When he learned that a local millionaire had contributed some money to the reform group, High spoke of the donation as a 20th century marvel because the donor was notorious as a tightwad by comparison with which the bark on a tree appears like the loosest Mother Hubbard. The Reverend Dr. Matthews toured the skid road to get first-hand information on vice conditions. After the cleric had told his congregation of the horrors he had seen below the line, Gill asked, What was that bachelor, that unmarried young man, doing in a place like that? How did he know where to go? He knew his way around. Don't believe anything that wizard oil artist tells you. When one of the minister's colleagues rebuked Gill for the implications of the speech, Gill called that divine another tramp. A layman who defended both ministers was characterized as a senile old dude, and the forces of decency in general he dismissed as a lot of ringtails, while their consorts were a bunch of magpies. The latter epithet was aimed mainly at the Women for Dilling, an organization that campaigned vigorously for the recall. Its main job was to make sure that women registered in time to vote. The registration committee coined the artless slogan, Women, get out and hustle. Not all the campaigning on the distaff side was on behalf of Dilling and decency. The Skid Road makes herded their protégés to the city hall and registered them en masse. A spokesman for Dilling complained querulously that a steady stream of fallen women are appearing to register, almost the entire female population of the Tenderloin signing up, many of them foreigners who do not even know the language, many of them imported into town within the last few weeks from New Orleans and El Paso but claiming long residence. And what respectable man can prove them liars? On election day in February 1911, less than a year after Gill's inauguration, 36,000 men and 22,000 women voted. Gill was defeated. Political analysts of the day guessed that the women's vote had been decisive. Dilling's majorities were largest in the districts where the vote had increased the most, presumably those in which women had registered. The correspondent for the New York Tribune pointed out that the downtown precincts gave Gill large pluralities, which were offset by the vote from the residence districts, where the influence of the women was mostly felt. Gill, commenting on his defeat, told a reporter, Wait a few months. Let him try to run this city closed. I don't think anybody can do it without direct intervention of the Almighty. 
Mayor Dilling made an earnest effort to close the town. He removed Wappenstein as chief of police. Word went out to the brothel keepers that in most cases no fix could be made. The exodus from the skid road was immediate. According to one account, nearly 200 women left on one train. It was a strange spectacle. A few of the girls were weeping, but many were in their gaudiest finery. Some were accompanied by their pink-cuffed fancy men. A crowd of spectators had assembled to see them off, and the girls took their pleasure in calling old customers by name and waving at respected men whose names they did not know. They bought tickets for towns as distant as Buffalo and as close as Tacoma, Everett, and Bellingham. Within a month after the election, police estimated that more than half of the Skid Road women had left town. Others took apartments. Meanwhile, a grand jury studied the organization of vice in Seattle under the Gill administration. After listening to the testimony of the town's prominent gamblers and madams, the jury indicted Wappenstein and his two henchmen, Gideon Tupper and Clarence Gerald. To the surprise of nobody, they were tried, convicted, and sentenced to the state penitentiary. The jury also made one indictment that came as a shock to much of the community. The man was the editor and publisher of the Seattle Times, Colonel Alden J. Blethen. Alden J. Blethen was a dominant figure in Seattle journalism. He may have been the most brilliant newspaper man ever to operate in Seattle, and he certainly was the most controversial. Few Seattle citizens found it possible to be nonpartisan about him. He himself was one of the least nonpartisan men who ever lived. It is quite possible that, as his enemies claimed, people bought the Times because they wanted to see what the big-headed bastard is up to now. But they bought more copies of his paper than they did of any other, and whatever the motives behind these purchases, they enabled Blethen to grow rich and powerful. Seattle journalism was 33 years old when Blethen came to town in 1896. The first issue of Seattle's first paper, the Gazette, had creaked off a battered, ramaged screw press on the second floor of Henry Yesler's office building at Front and Mill Streets, now South First and Yesler Way, on December 10, 1863. And there's a long footnote about the ramaged press. The Gazette's equipment was historic. The press was a model developed in 1796. Built in New York, it was shipped to Mexico in 1832 and from there to Monterey, California, where it was used for printing the proclamations of the Spanish governor. In 1846, it ran off the first newspaper in California, The Californian, a tiny sheet in Spanish and English, devoted mostly to American naval and military pronouncements about the Mexican War. Since the equipment was Mexican, the editor was bothered by a type font that contained no W's, which, he told his readers, was why Vivi must use two Vivis. The press was moved to San Francisco in 1847, and there it was used first by the Star and then by the Alta California, the best of the early West Coast papers. When the Alta California needed more modern equipment, the press was shipped north to Portland and was used for the first issue of the Oregonian. The Oregonian soon outgrew it, and the press again sailed north. In Olympia, it printed the Columbian, the first paper in Washington Territory. Watson brought it to Seattle in 1863. It outlived the Gazette and was in on another berth, that of the Intelligencer. The old press is now in the Museum of the University of Washington. The Gazette was written and edited and put in type by James R. Watson, a frontier newspaperman who had found the competition too strenuous in the big town of Olympia. An Indian boy worked the ancient press whenever there was enough news and advertising matter to fill the four nine-and-a-half by fourteen-and-a-half-inch pages. This was not often. In the depressed days of the early 60s, there was not much to buy or sell, nor were there so many people in town that everybody didn't know everything that happened as soon as it happened. The Gazette suspended publication for the summer of 1864, in the fall, though, an event occurred that changed the pattern of pioneer journalism. The Western Union Telegraph Line reached Seattle. At 4 p.m. on October 26, 1864, the wire clacked out its first telegraphic story. The dispatch was from Chattanooga and dealt with General Billy Sherman's progress in Georgia. He was maneuvering against General Hood in the campaign against Atlanta. 
Watson issued his first extra. The Western Union wire meant that the paper could get news ahead of the populace, but tolls were high and Watson didn't have enough money to pay them. He thought of a frontier-style solution. Whenever the telegraph operator climbed the wooden steps to the Gazette office to say a war dispatch had arrived, Watson would visit the town's more prosperous merchants and collect two bits from each of them. With this money, he'd pay the collect charges on the wire, then he'd set the dispatch in type, pull a galley proof for each man who had contributed a quarter, and save the type for publication whenever a new issue was possible. Even with such ingenious publishing devices, the Gazette was unable to survive more than three years. The pattern of desperate improvisation set by Watson was followed by later editors, usually with no more success. The most charming of the early-day failures was the Figaro, a lively one-sheet daily that survived a scant fortnight, and in its final issue invited all non-subscribers, who were legion, to go to hell. It was more usual for a Seattle paper to expire with a whimper. In view of the lack of response to our appeal for all those who owe us money to pay their just debts, we are forced to suspend, then with a curse and a bang. The first paper to show stamina was the Intelligencer, which began as a weekly in 1867 and 11 years later was strong enough to add a daily edition. The Intelligencer absorbed the Puget Sound Dispatch in 1879, then in 1881 combined with the three-year-old Post. Through the 80s, the Post-Intelligencer was easily the dominant paper in town, first under the editorship of Thomas Prosh and after 1886 under Lee Hunt. Hunt ran an interesting paper, but he also ran up a lot of debts, and the Panic of 93 forced him to sell. For half a decade, the paper staggered along under editors who were either too literary or else so passionately anti-populist in a populist era that readers gathered below the office windows at Post and Yesler to sing lynching songs. Politically-minded John L. Wilson purchased the paper in 1899 with $400,000 lent to him by Jim Hill. According to accepted legend, the railroad tycoon became interested in Wilson in 1896 when he sent Wilson a check for $10,000 to be used by the Republicans in the election. Wilson sent it back with the prediction, which proved correct, that the state was hopelessly populist and suggested that Hill might as well save his money. Hill replied with thanks for such foresighted pessimism and added that if Wilson ever needed anything to let him know. In 1899, Wilson heard that the post-intelligencer could be had for a down payment of $50,000 and sent Hill a wire letting him know. Hill wired back that the money had been deposited in Wilson's name in a New York bank. Wilson ran an interesting paper, which, though it had a strong Republican bias, never engaged in the outright fabrications that sometimes graced the pages of its only dangerous rival, the Times. Wilson was handicapped, though, by having to siphon off money to repay Hill, almost half a million dollars in principal and interest. The Times did not spring from such hardy or expensive stock as the Post-Intelligencer. It was the lineal descendant of the Chronicle, which was born in 1881 and, after achieving an associated press franchise, disappeared in 1886 when it was merged with the Call, the combined papers were renamed the Press. Soon afterward, the Press combined with a small sheet called the Times and for a while appeared as the Press Times, with Erastus Brainerd as editor. Blethen bought the plant of the bankrupt Press Times in 1896 for less than a tenth of what Wilson had to pay for his paper three years later at the height of the gold rush. He lopped off the first name of the hybrid and embarked on an editorial policy which was at once vigorous, spectacular, and bewildering. In six months, he pushed circulation from 3,000 to 7,000 with corresponding gains in advertising lineage. And we'll stop there. That's episode 21 of The Housebound Historian. We're reading Skid Road, an informal portrait of Seattle, written by Murray Morgan, published by Viking in 1951. I'm Felix Bunnell. Join me for the next episode of The Housebound Historian.